Tanya McDowell is a black mother who in 2012 was arrested for using a different address to enroll her son into a better school district and selling narcotics. A parent doing whatever they can to make sure their child gets the best possible resources to provide the best opportunities is a reasonable motivation and a sympathetic one. While it doesn't justify her action, her motive is something that I think we can all relate to. What do you think the punishment should be for using a different address to get your son to a better school? A few weeks? A few months? A year, perhaps? Tanya was sentenced to five years in prison. That's five years where her son does not have a parental figure in his life. That's five years where a son will be essentially without a mother. And that's five years where Tanya will have no opportunity to improve her and her son's situation, nor will things get easier once she is released. Is five years the proper amount? I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a legal scholar. What I do know is that in the 2019 college admission scandal, Felicity Huffman, charged with paying thousands of dollars to alter her child's SAT score, got only 14 days in prison. And Lori Laughlin, who paid hundreds of thousands of dollars getting her daughter into USC as a fake athlete, served only two months. This is Everything is Public Health, a show about all the hidden forces that impact the collective health of the population. When a criminal justice system is flawed and biased, it is in itself a health issue because everything is intertwined. To quote Dr. King, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. This will be the third episode in a row which we covered something that is an important underlying factor in public health. So we did poverty and education, and now we're doing criminal justice. And again, this is because there are some topics that are just so fundamental that we must do an introduction episode first before we can dive into any particulars. It may appear that we have pivoted to a podcast about social issues, but rest assured, (laughs) we're still a podcast about public health. But like the title of the show states... Everything is public health. And likewise, these social issues impact people's health in ways that many perhaps don't think about. And that's why we're talking about them. Absolutely. Right. Folks are far too focused on individual health and well-being and diet and exercise and sort of things that they can do as people or persons to impact their own health and well-being. But we all are in families, which are in communities, which are in states, right? Like we think about the socio-ecologic model in public health and how we're really, our individual biology impacts certain things, but there's these rings out around us sort of encircling us that impact our health and well-being and laws and policies and societal issues absolutely are public health concerns. Yeah. In the last episode in education, we mentioned that individual factors accounts for only 20% of people's health. The other 80% is all these social determinants. One of the core assumptions of public health is that we care about the health of everyone or the public or the population, if you will, meaning that the work of public health does not end when a particular group is healthy. And this is why public health is heavily invested in these social issues because our society sadly isn't equal and our health-related burdens are certainly not equitable. Everything is intertwined. And today's topic is criminal justice, specifically how the system it is currently is, is a public health issue. Try not to, you know, go off too much, but thoughts on our criminal justice system. Yeah, I think there are a lot of folks just generally, not just in sort of specific to public health, who aren't aware of some of the challenges with our criminal justice system, that sort of at every point there is bias that 
certain individuals, predominantly black and brown individuals, end up in the criminal justice system where white individuals don't. And one statistic that I think a lot of folks aren't aware of is that 30 or 40 years ago, our prison population was like 400,000 or something like that. And now it's several million. And so the decisions that we make have dramatically impacted not just the criminal justice system, but how many people are touched by it and how that impacts their health and well-being. So the goal of this episode will be to demonstrate why criminal justice is a public health concern. There are many ways that we could dissect this. In fact, too many to count. So let's keep it relatively simple. We'll first analyze this on two levels, the individual and the community level. The individual level's health impact will revolve around the established relationship between stress and negative health outcomes. We know for a fact that stress causes all sorts of negative health outcomes, so heart disease, stroke, and cancer, and all those other things. What do you think happen when either through the media or through your lived experience, you perceive the criminal justice system as unfair? Like, What do you think that happens to you, your mind? In your body, right? I think we rightfully would expect to see some physical ailments resulting from these trauma, these stresses. We know that there are relationships between psychological stress and trauma and physical manifestations of illness, sort of health and well-being. There's a really interesting study in Philadelphia looking at stress associated with perceived safety and related to sort of chronic health issues. And that's the spaces that you're in, how you are allowed to behave in those spaces and the risks posed to you in those spaces can absolutely impact your physical health, not just your mental health. Yeah. And literally in the last episode, we said how we feel, like how stressed we are affects our decision making. You can't really make good decisions when you're under stress or when you are living in a space that you perceive the criminal justice system as being against you. And there has been several surveys by the Pew Charitable Trust or the Pew Foundation that has polled both black and white Americans. And there is a huge discrepancy in the perception of the legal system and the criminal justice system. Blacks are more likely to perceive the criminal justice system as an unfair system. And this is very evident in the numbers. So blacks are disproportionately, and when I say disproportionately, so a lot of people, I'm not going to name names, but a lot of people will say, well, you know, (laughs) there are more white people shot by police than black people, or there are more, but they focus on the count. The raw numbers. The raw numbers. Whereas when I say disproportionately, I mean, for example, blacks are only, I don't know, numbers. 13%. Yeah, something like that. 13% of the population, they are disproportionately represented in convictions and you're like okay well convictions and then you know some racist out there is going to think oh maybe because blah 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 they're also disproportionately represented in wrongful convictions so they got cleared later they're disproportionately represented and they're disproportionately represented in weight of sentence in a sense that if you take two very similar crimes and then you compare aggregate the amount of sentence like you could do this by time like literally how much time and you just add up everyone's time they're disproportionately represented in the weight of sentence the blacks are far more likely to get heavier sentence uh, or mandatory minimums etc and they're disproportionately represented in fatal police shootings and this is not a good it creates stress is what I'm trying to say. Yes, it creates stress. And this is a significant problem. 
but the system is functioning as we designed it. Correct. Like, this is not we, a, yeah. <laughs> we should not be surprised that we see disproportionate representation by Black Americans and Black and Brown Americans in these different categories because of the way we prioritize where our law enforcement spends its time, mm-hmm. how we police these different communities. And we talked previously, Black and white Americans use drugs at similar rates, but Blacks are far more likely to be arrested, convicted, and incarcerated for that drug use than white Americans. We have created an unfair system that is focused in certain areas. We talked previously about sort of the history of some of the ways policing was influenced and developed in the U.S., And we then are like, what? What? (laughs) These are race neutral policies. There's no race sort of present in the language of these policies. I'm so surprised that we have racial bias and discrimination in this. Well, it's because of where we spend our time. I always say this is somebody's quote, but I like it and paraphrase it to be like, Basically, how you spend your money tells me what you value. Yes, exactly. And so how we spend our money, where we prioritize our policing, that really is telling. And that creates trauma and stress that impacts the health and well-being of these communities that are already experiencing stress from violence. Yeah. And I think a good, if you can't understand this because you're not from a certain background, uh, I highly recommend the book Between the World and Me by Tana Hesse Coates. Great book. It's on my bookshelf. It's a great book. I was genuinely moved reading that. But yeah, shout out to Tana Hesse Coates and Between the World and Me. If you want to have an idea of what that does to people's mind. It, I think he wrote it in, as a letter to his son. He did. Which is a homage to James Baldwin, I think. But anyway, and on the community level, the scene is even darker. The US leads the world in incarceration rates and counts. While we account for 5% of the entire world's population, we account for a quarter of the world's prison population. So I just need you to, okay, if we take literally every prisoner in the entire world and we put them in a room, one in four is in an American prison. Yep. That's just not shock. It shocks me, and I'm pretty sure it shocks you, but I, I don't, I can't see what the listeners are reacting. It is shocking. And again, like, it's not just that one in four prisoners are in an American prison. It's that we only have 5% of population. So we would expect that our representation in those sort of world prison population would be closer to 5%, but it's not. We have this really outsized representation because of our policies, because of our sentencing strategies, and because of our focus on unitedness and holding people accountable, which we can do a whole sort of side spicy note about like there really is not accountability in our criminal justice system and that we should be thinking about other forms like restorative justice but the way we have set up our structures and policies this this is where we are yeah and while the u.s does have more crime crime level alone does not explain this proportion so people have obviously done the stats work that i can't really understand but they basically went into it and it's a crime alone is not an explanation for why we have so much proportion of the world's prison population this is largely due to mass incarceration policies, and a lot of them came during the war on drugs and the war on crime, which are, by the way, stupid names. <laughs> and uh, what do you think is the health impact on the community level when 
this many people, particularly this many people from certain communities, are incarcerated. Yeah. First off, I just want to throw back to our Monday bonus episode where we talked about broken windows. So if folks aren't familiar with that, go back and, and listen to that because that zero tolerance policing, this sort of war on crime, um, really contributed to this. But when you think about family structure, right? So we hear a lot from conservatives that we've gotten away from the traditional family structure, and that's why we're having so many sort of issues with crime and violence. But we have also designed a set of policies that largely removed from the family, from the home, adult black and brown males from communities, right? Entire populations of men have been either arrested or incarcerated in some way and separating people. They may have been arrested for a a minimal or sort of minor crime and they're in jails and prisons with folks who might have committed very heinous crimes and they come out perhaps very different than when they went in. And as you expect, right? Right. And once you have been arrested and incarcerated, it becomes much harder when you re-enter society to get a job, to get housing, you sort of reconnect with family members and loved ones. We've sort of created a subcast. If you read Isabella Wilkerson's book, Cast, she talks a lot about sort of how we have intentionally created a subset of the population with our policies. Yeah. And when you remove people from the civilian labor force, you're essentially creating dents in the community. That's what you're doing. And also from a economic perspective, all these resources, do you know how much money we spent on prisons? Like, my God. I don't know the current numbers off the top of my head, but a few years ago, I was drawing some parallels between sort of how we spend our money. And at least a handful of years ago, Maryland was spending, I think it was around $36,000 per year per prisoner. So if we think about how much money we are spending on people already, we talk about this all the time on the show, right? Like we're already spending the money. Yeah. Let's spend it differently. So rather than spending $36,000 a year to put somebody in prison after they've committed whatever the crime may be, let's spend that $36,000 a year to provide people universal basic income and housing and social services and supports to address the trauma that they've experienced throughout their lives. Like We are already spending the money and how we spend it demonstrates where our priorities are and they are not in the safety and well-being and ability to thrive of our communities. I was going to say thriviness, but that's not a word. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a word. They are being spent on punishment and like punitive stuff. And then children in schools don't get this amount of money, right? I think per every child in public school per child is just a few thousand dollars, I believe, depending on what what state or what county you live in. But what you said is at least one magnitude higher to whatever we're spending on per child in our public schools. So this is essentially what this is, is a divestment away from the community. That's what it is. And historically, and this is sort of the third level I don't want to get into. Historically, there are many groups of individuals who are ignored by policymakers, the media or society in general when we're making decisions that could impact their health. One of these groups is prisoners or the incarcerated. Before we talk about them, we need to talk about the elephant in the room. There are some people out there who will say, why do we care? They're criminals. They committed a crime, which has always been an absurd argument for me, because for one, we already established that the system doesn't treat everyone equally. I have my take on this, but I want to hear like your take first. Yeah, I think this is something that I'm frustrated by because, again, throwing back to a conversation we've had in prior episodes, we blame individuals for their choices, ignoring the structures and systems that they're in that impact their ability to make 
these different choices. And on the flip side, individuals are very quick to celebrate their own individual success as opposed to sort of acknowledging the things that got them where they are. So I always get very mad when people are like, oh, they violated the law. We should hold them accountable. Why should we care about them? It's like, well, because in many instances, we set these folks up to fail. Yeah. And then we're like, ha ha, you failed, even though we could have anticipated it based on how we have invested or disinvested in certain communities and certain groups of people. Yeah. And before I talk about my take on this, I just want to reiterate the fact that perhaps we haven't done in the beginning of this episode is that individual accountability is a thing, right? We are not stripping away people's individual action. They're, right. If you do something wrong, if, you should you be should held accountable punished, for that. Right? Yes. Absolutely. Right. If you're hurting other people, you maybe should be separated from folks for a while. Yes. So we're not saying that all their actions can be explained, right? Individual action is certainly still a component. So my take on this is thus. One of the ways, and I'll, I'll promise you this will get somewhere, but one of the ways to tell whether a country or government is authoritarian is by asking the simple question, do their criminals have rights? If the answer is no, that government leans authoritarian because all the people in power have to do to maintain power is to declare whoever they don't like a criminal and bam, you have no rights. You can be exiled, you can be tortured, you could be disappeared, etc. Criminals with rights is the hallmark of a good legal system. And it's a hallmark, I believe, of a good society because if your criminals don't have rights... That's a very scary position to be in. Do you know what I mean? Like where I'm going with this? I know exactly what you mean. And I think a really compelling comparison is the way we treat our prison population versus the way prisoners are treated in Germany, yes. for example. So in in the US, in many prisons, it's like a mass camp. Mm-hmm. It's literally a camp, yeah. Like everybody's in these bunks. There's, you know, you've got multiple people. It's stripped down. You get a toilet. Maybe you get a sink. You got a sort of a basic bed. And you really don't have access to things. Sort of every single move you make is very closely monitored. And again, for some folks who are maybe are incarcerated for really heinous acts, okay, maybe that makes sense. But in places like Germany, even people who have committed violent acts, they get a room that is sort of much more like an an apartment. They are still treated with dignity as a human being. Yeah. The way we treat our prison population is basically taking some of that humanity away, dehumanizing them. And we talked about this again in prior episodes that when you dehumanize someone, it's easier to justify treating them poorly because they're less than human. But if you retain an individual's dignity and humanity and respect them in that way, it's a very different process. Yeah. And in that vein of thinking, right, if we simply don't care about the health of our incarcerated population, what does that say about us as a society, right? It perhaps reflect that we are just shuffling people we don't like out of sight and perhaps reflect that we view them as something less than human, like you said. And I don't think it needs to be said, but prisons are awful places to be. Our prison health system is very poor and it does not handle the complex health issues that that people in prison often face. There are estimates that puts the health burden of mass incarceration at reducing the overall U.S. life expectancy by up to five years. So prisons and jails also handle COVID very poorly, and some of that is due to their lack of resources, but obviously there's some design flaws in it as well. So we will have a separate episode on prisons, but the point I was trying to make is that you know prisons are What's a good way to say this? They're they're not a great place to be. And then they themselves represent a health burden on society. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is going to sound tangential, but it's it's sort of going to come back. Like there are only, I guess now, sort of three groups 
in the U.S. who are guaranteed healthcare. Older Americans, Medicare, yeah, children and or individuals with disabilities, mm-hmm. and prisoners. Mm-hmm. And so when they're in the prison system, they may be exposed to all sorts of negative um, elements, but sometimes people actually can receive services that they wouldn't otherwise get. And then we send them back out and then they can't get a job and they can't get health insurance. So maybe, for example, they were receiving medication for opioid use disorder while they were in prison. They're released. Many folks are not given sort of the case management where they are established with Medicaid. They are connected to different services. And so we are bringing people in, separating them from community, punishing them, but also sometimes sort of treating things to help them and then kicking them right back out into the situations and conditions that they were in so that all of the sort of gains they may have made with regard to their health, recognizing that there are harms as well. And then we are sort of shocked, like, well, oh, this person relapsed. And they're and they're back using drugs. Well, because they had no supports yeah. when they were released. We have currently designed a criminal justice system that is more about punishment and being punitive than it is about restorative and rehabilitating. It's not about accountability, exactly. No. And again, to be clear, we're not saying that we should not be holding people accountable for their actions, but the system as designed in the U.S. has very little accountability and is not about getting people rehabilitated and back to being contributing members of society. It's about you've done something wrong and we're going to punish you to the extent possible. This is, a, a again, another public health issue because all you're doing is essentially isolating people from society and then just throwing them back out again. What do you think that does to people's health? Right. What do you think that how that affects the community's health when these people are pulled out and then shoved back in without any sort of transition or any sort of like case management, as you said? Again, we're going to come back to prisons. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about the awesomeness that is public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. Send us questions or comments to EverythingIsPublicHealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krufasi. And please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcast. It does help the show immensely. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page and you can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.